Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran. This is a podcast as part of the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Mark McClish, who is Assistant Professor in Religious Studies at Northwestern. Hello, Mark. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing very well on this Friday afternoon. It's Friday where we are. We have no idea when you're listening to this. (laughs) It's Friday for us. Right. So today, we get to speak about a very interesting title. Interesting for me, anyhow. um, The History of the Artha Shastra, Sovereignty and Sacred Law in Ancient India. So, Mark, maybe a great place to start would be to talk about what it is you study and how you study it. So, for example, this isn't an ethnographic book where you're interviewing people. Um, you are studying the Artha Shastra. So talk to us about what the Artha Shastra is and how is it that you went about studying it for this publication? Yeah, um, the Artha Shastra is a manual of statecraft from ancient India. And by that, I mean, it's something of a kind of um, instructional treatise on how to run a kingdom. Uh, And in that respect, it covers a lot of territory, everything from the education of princes to um, the law of royal courts to standardization of weights and measures to battlefield strategy, pretty much uh, most everything you'd need to know to be a successful king. And I argue in the book that uh, it was composed over a, um, a period of time. It was probably originally composed or the original version of the text was composed sometime around the first century BCE. And then what I'm really trying to do in the in this book is to demonstrate that that text then underwent a redaction. Uh, an editor came in and made substantial changes to the text, uh, and I placed those changes around the third century BCE. Um, and what I try to do using textual criticism, we can perhaps talk about those methods if those are interesting to you, um, is to uh, I really identify the early material and the later material, if not you know in every detail, then in according to certain kinds of interpretive principles, and then to engage in a kind of uh, diachronic comparison of material in the text as it pertains to the question of sovereignty and the sacred law of Dharma, particularly how, if at all, uh, Dharma is understood to limit or impinge or shape the practice, sovereign practices of the king. So obviously a a fascinating uh, topic. And as I mentioned, as we were chatting before we began, I may be biased because I study Indian kingship and my name happens to be Raj. So, um, you know, slightly biased audience, but before we delve into the the argument you're making in terms of the Dharma of the King, um, yeah, the method in theory. So you're studying this ancient uh, Brahmanical Sanskrit text, um, Unlike, for example, one of our recent interviews uh, with uh, Jessica on reciting the goddess, mm-hmm. um, you're not weeding through manuscripts. You're sort of doing no. something similar to what I did, where you have a very stable Sanskrit text that you're now interpreting in terms of historicity or in terms of um, themes. Is that, would you say that's correct? That's right. That's right. So we might make a rough distinction there between so-called lower criticism and the uh, higher criticism. Uh, lower criticism being the collation of texts 
uh, and their comparison for the purpose of producing, in theory, the earliest recoverable form of the text, as opposed to higher criticism, which takes a version of the text, hopefully that version of the text, and then looks at internal indicators, internal features and characteristics, and tries to probe a little bit uh, uh, deeper historically. So yeah, I use Conglay's critical edition, which I think is you know, for the most part, um, widely accepted, uh, its readings are widely accepted. And, um, but the, the thing about the critical edition in this case is that the old, the oldest um, manuscript for the Artha Shastra is only fragmentary, and it probably only goes back to about the 12th century. So um, the version of the text that can be reconstructed through lower criticism is really the medieval version of the text. And to get any, uh, any deeper than that, any behind that version of the text, then one has to um, look at uh, what I think are formal features of the text, um, the um, kind of thematic structure of the text, and see if one can deduce um, evidence that shows uh, how it might have been composed um, and how it might have uh, changed over time. So that's that's what I do, right? Working with uh, Conglay's critical edition, trying to identify formal features and thematic features that give us some sense of um, its evolution. Would you say you've, adopt, you've adopted a fairly standard uh, methodology? Would you say that engaging the Arthashastra has occasioned you to, to, to develop something novel in how you look at the text? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think higher criticism is the kind of thing, and of course, you know, the, the Puranas, right? Your field is an area in which this has kind of been most developed, but it's something that I think um, critical readers of texts are always kind of thinking about or thinking through anyway. I mean, when we look at parts of text and we see that, you know, two pieces of a text repeats one another or there's some discord or, you know, then we're, we're starting to think about the processes through which the text was composed. And that is in essence, what higher criticism really is, is trying to find those traces in the text that give us some sense about um, maybe how it was put together over time. Now, when it comes to establishing the principles for the Artha Shastra, um, they they're necessarily unique to that text. And I think that's true for textual criticism um, across the board. There are some things that texts will share in common, features they'll share in common that are salient to textual criticism. For instance, I talk about what I call redundant segmentation in the book, and that's um, the situation wherein the Arta Shastra is divided by two different segmentation schemes, uh, neither of which is a subset of the other. So they, they truly are redundant. One does not you know, um, depend on the other in a sense. And we see redundant segmentation all over Sanskrit texts. I think it's often a sign that the text was transmitted into an educational context text where it was redivided into different kinds of segments for the purpose of edu different educational purposes. I think redundant segmentation arises often when commentators are looking at a text and they're kind of thinking through its different parts or, or establishing different segments to comment upon. So that's an example of something that I think that we see in the Arthashastra Shastra that's, a, that's kind of generally applicable to textual criticism. But for the most part, the principles of a specific text critical study are highly dependent on that text itself. So, um, so uh, when it comes to understanding or trying to come up with some kind of understanding of the development of the Artha Shastra, um, everything is kind of right there between the, between the covers in a sense, right? The things that um, are salient and have to be made sense of are, um, are going to be unique to that text. So, so the stability of the text, notwithstanding, it's, it's clearly uh, the work of many hands, which is part of, it, part of the challenge of, of right. the Sanskrit text. Several hands, at least. And, I, you know, and I'm, this is, I'm getting outside of my uh, wheelhouse here, but I'm increasingly convinced that this is the case with almost everything that we have, that, that our idea of the text as a single authored um, work 
uh, is probably the exception in, in ancient India, at least, and that texts were embedded in traditions uh, and that over time, many hands worked on them as a rule, I would think. You know, that sort of um, sums up the rationale behind asking after whether your methodological approach um, was novel or, or because it, it, it does seem that um, it's really difficult for um, for we Western scholars to get over this idea of, you know, a, a studying a text that's not a text in the way we think of a text, right. not single authored. And so really in the Puranas, it, you know, it, it's a... It's a real challenge for some readers and scholars to get over that idea and not think of it as some kind of uh, deviation from right. what the text is, as opposed to that being the text. That, 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 you know, That's right. Those branches or, are the banyan, right? So that's right, or text tradition. I mean, and I, I don't, you know, I don't know how valuable it is for me to get too deeply in the theoretical weeds and and the theorization of text. But certainly that, that term is misleading, right? If by that we mean a kind of stable literary production that, that then kind of gets transmitted without changes over time. And most of these are text traditions, it seems to me, where you have um, something that's being passed down or transmitted within expert traditions, expert communities. And from time to time, they get abridged, added to, you know, um, and transformed in different ways. And I think one of the things that's, that's, that keeps people clinging to this idea of the text is that we would love to be able to date these things and then use them as roads, you know, as, as mileposts for the study of a, a period that has, you know, a kind of impoverished historiography in a lot of ways. Uh, and, you know, but as much as we want that to be the case, it doesn't mean that, you know, that the texts aren't going to, you know, play nice so that we can say sixth century, fourth century, third century, and, and be done with it. it. It nevertheless seems that you're, your book uh, fills a gap or um, importantly comments on um, the dating of this text. You know? mm -hmm. it, that is part of a great part of your project, it seems. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that in some cases we're going to be able to, I mean, once we, you know, once we accept that the art of Shastra, as I've accepted, I hope others find the argument convincing that it's a period, it's a product of several different periods. Um, then we can say some things particularly that are more specific and, and then say some things about history um, based on that. But I don't expect that will be the case in every, in every circumstance. Certainly I think of things like the, the Pali Canon and the, you know, the, the, the complexities in some of these texts are going to be, Pranas perhaps, are going to be too great to come up with kind of tidy um, models like I was able to for the Artashastra or like that I argue for with respect to the Artashastra. But certainly in some cases it should be possible uh, to to find examples of texts that can be dated in their development and give us a sense at least of, of how texts were composed and developed over time, at least certain instances. So what's your primary interest in this text? What are you, what are you asking of this text? What are, you, what are you probing this text for in this book? Yeah, I mean, there's a part of me that is just fascinated with text and with Sanskrit language, and, and is ha that's the first part of the book, and is just happy to ask questions uh, about the text itself kind of for its own sake, I find it. I find it endless, endless, the text itself endlessly interesting, the substance of it is endlessly interesting, and the, you know, the kinds of traces left by the different hands in it are fascinating to me, and kind of trying to work through that as its own reward. Uh, but in, in historical terms, in, in terms of history of religions, um, you know, the Arta Shastra is, it sticks in the craw of, of, our, of our image of ancient India a lot of times, the one that, that predominantly comes out of the epics and the Puranas and, and uh, the Brahmanical ritual and religious literature. Uh, and that's what attracted me to the text to begin with. It's, you know, I, um, and through the early part of my education, 
uh, had really, you know, a very kind of um, set view of spiritual India, religious India, you know, kings doing their dharma, uh, this kind of thing. And when I was introduced to the Arthashastra in grad school, uh, it just was so surprising to me uh, that that that's, that culture could also produce a text like this. And as I thought about it more deeply, I thought, well, you know, in many ways, and I make this argument in the book, um, the Arthashastra is a much better witness to what's happening at royal courts in the period than a lot of other texts. And this raises the question of genre and the ways that we do and don't theorize genre as part of our historical work on these texts. I mean, there's a, there's a tendency to, it's a kind of flattening tendency when we read texts to, um, to kind of get them to aggregate into one picture instead of really seeing differences in audience and differences in social location. But certainly the Arthashastra has some kind of privileged perspective. There's, there's really um, no other text that can convince us as much as it does that it understands how deliberations worked amongst kings and their ministers. And the surprising thing, as I argue in here, is that if we look at what I think is the original version of the text, it's quite clear that they were operating within what... Um, I would call in, in very heavy uh, scare quotes, a secular context uh, and from a secular perspective. And so to me, that's the challenge of the Arthashastra. And I think it's repeated with different texts and different genres, but how do we get it to sit beside our other sources on kingship from the ancient period and make sense of their differences as part of the same kind of cultural milieu or cultural context? Um, that's the, that's the bigger question. I don't really address that in here. This is what I think of as more the kind of foundational work that needs to happen before um, the text can be prepared in a sense for an engagement with a broader set of historical sources and, and, and different methods than I use. Well, there's so much that's interesting in what you've just said. I mean, the, the, even the preamble to answering the question, the interest in, in, in how the text works. I mean, um, many folks go to a text with a question about what it's saying. And even before that, there's so much we can study about how it's saying it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, whether it's frame narrative, whether it's redaction, so, you know, um, and what you say about what the text says, which you allude to anyhow, in terms of it being uh, for those of, uh, for those of you in the audience who may not be familiar, it really, emphasizes you know the the the, the gore and grit and pragmatism <laughs> of, of rulership yes um which can be juxtaposed against the the idealism that we see in the epics and the puranas and the the, the pragmatism to me i mean with, with so with such idealism mm -hmm. uh, represented in um, most answered narratives in terms of who kings are or who they should be. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems that that very same culture must necessarily produce something very pragmatic. Yeah, and kind of in a way surprisingly so, right? Not not just for India, but for the ancient world. The Arthashastra is not just kind of unique in an Indian context, but in a global context too. It's whatever, however we want to call it, it's pragmatism or it's realism. But, you know, the, the authors of this text, and I presume and I argue the, the experts in the statecraft tradition uh, had really um, in their minds conceptualized the sphere of governance as a field of action and organized their reflection on it in very empiricist and very pragmatic terms. And, you know, that's, there's a historical question there. How Within the kind of the more complex social reality of kingship, whatever that is, this, this very complex cultural assemblage. Um, how does this, how does governance itself come to be isolated as a con, you know, as, as a field of action? Uh, and then why does it take this, um, this very kind of uh, pragmatic and empiricist? Um, why, why does the text take such a pragmatic and empiricist approach to it? That's a, 
you know, that's that's the kind of that's the same question, but in historical perspective, right? Where does this come from? Um, what what happens within kingship or within courts or within states that that there is this not just a space created for this, perhaps a necessity uh, created for this? That's the word that, the, and you know, obviously there are no answers to these these sweeping questions, but the word that comes to mind in terms of why is, is necessity. Yeah, it, it seems to me that when we study uh, the Puranas and the epics. Um, when you know, in my brain at least, ideology um, is um, how things are imagined to be, mm-hmm. right? Whether we can't we can't we can't conflate um, how things were in the past and how things uh, were imagined in the past. So right. these texts tell us that all all these texts tell us is that there were people who imagined kingship to be this way. Sure, that's <laughs> whether, right. Whether or not it was. And the Arthashastra very much to me is, uh, it, it's, it's, it's what needs to be for kingship to survive. Right, right. But I mean, it, that still raises some interesting questions, which is, you know, how, how did people become convinced that, that a materialist framework was the, was the, the needful, in a sense, right? I mean, is it... Uh, in other words, to, at least to me, it seems remarkable that um, that there was such a clear-eyed sense of um, of um, just the idea that that efficacy can be traced or can be identified most easily in an empiricist framework, right? Cause and effect, you know, that that you do X, you get Y. Y happens; it was caused by X, and and this is where the state um, uh, establishes its policies and and carries them out. Um, that, to me, that still seems like a the, the you know a, a phenomenological perspective, and and its emergence is something that has to be accounted for, in a way. What's not clear, though, and I, I still don't know if I have a good answer for this, is you know, is the Arthashastra its own ideology? Is there an ideology of materialism and pragmatism here, or is it meant to be the kind of the private and interior dimensions of of kingship, whose public face is the ideological or idealistic face that we're used to from? Um, from the you know the piranhas and the epics and, and other sources, uh, or or are, were they incompatible? And at least in the minds of certain people, you know, was was how would a Brahmin like Kautilya just to kind of imagine a certain kind of figure like this? How would he have heard a Brahmin like Manu, or how would he have heard uh, you know how, how, what would he have made of the of the arguments about kingship that we see in the Mahabharata that we see in the Puranas? Would he have said yes, 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 that's that's exactly right, but we still have to get some things done. So let's just focus on the needful. Uh, or would he have said these fools, you know, I hope they don't really believe this or, or, you know, um, and, and I don't know that, I don't know. I mean, that, that's, that's what I would like to try to figure out a little bit, uh, a little bit more. Fascinating on the question. What most, um, there's so many points of entry for your, uh, f- for your data. What most surprised you? What most intrigued you in your, in your journey with the Arthur Shastra? I think that, that this tech, that this, uh, this text critical approach worked at all, you know, because I, you know, you, you, how do you develop, right? How, how do you develop a model for the history of the composition of a text? And you, you know, we're, we are pattern seeing beings, whether those patterns are there or not, right? Faces in the clouds and all that. And, and, and as, as I started to kind of poke around and, and try to think about, um, you know, a global model of the text, you're really just looking at local parts, chapters and 
um, different passages and you're starting to see things, you know, that, that really are, are you, you're developing a sense of what these patterns might be. Um, but then that needs to be tested, right? So you develop a kind of hypothesis based on local conditions and then you go to another part of the text and you see, can I get this to work here? And the big, the biggest surprise was that it did, it did end up working more or less. I mean, I don't, I don't think that one develops a model of a text like this, like one develops physical laws, you know, their, their, their texts are always going to be too slippery, I think, to, uh, to be contained that way. But, um, the fact that the model that I came up explained so many things for me elsewhere uh, was was a pleasant surprise. But you know, you never quite know because you know there's a lot of dead ends too that don't that don't pan out, right? Um, and I think that's the challenge of text criticism too is to make sure that you're not higher criticism, that you're not convincing yourself that you're seeing something uh, that you're actually responding to formal features of the text in their relation. So that's one surprise. And then and then um, you know, the, the two parts of the text, one is uh, really strictly focused on what I think of as formal and thematic features of the text it, 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 and, uh, and not on ideological features of the text. The second is uh, part is about the ideological features. So, you know, as I approached this project, I, I, admittedly part of my uh, impetus was the recognition that a lot of what looked like Dharma Shastric, you know, epic, Quranic kind of royal ideology was occurring in verses that were very, for lack of a better word, suspicious looking to me, their placement in the text and their location. Um, and so, um, so the, there was always two parts to the inquiry, right? One was the kind of pure textual analysis, but the other was to see if I couldn't sort out some kind of chronological relationship in the text between different ideologies of kingship. And so the second surprise is that that, that ended up working, that once I had the, the compositional model of the text, as I had, you know, kind of hypothesized, nearly all, if not all, of what I would call the Varnashrama Dharma material, the kind of Dharmic Brahmanical material, nearly all of it can be can be uh, assigned to that later part of the text. You know, so it worked. <laughs> it worked both as a kind of um, a text critical model and as a kind of theory of the development of the political philosophy of the text over time. Just to unpack before we proceed, uh, the Varnashrama Dharma. Yeah, I mean, I use that as the kind of as the way it's often used in the Dharma Shastric material as a kind of shorthand for Dharma Shastra itself, or the orthopraxy and orthodoxy of Dharma Shastra. So, uh, Varnashrama Dharma, Varna, uh, those are the the well known four social classes that can be traced back to um, the um, the earliest, uh, the latest parts of the Rig Veda, um, the Brahmins, Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, and Shudras. It, it really becomes a kind of shorthand for thinking about hierarchy and Brahmanical supremacy. Uh, in India more broadly. Uh, ashrama are the modes of life or the stages of life, the life paths, the, the four that are arranged in the Dharma Shastras chronologically, the student, the householder, the forest dweller, and the renouncer. Um, and Dharma refers, of course, to the kind of sacred cosmic law that uh, has been, I don't know, distilled from the Vedic revelation. And, and collectively, um, Varnashrama Dharma therefore refers to the, the entire body of sacred rules that pertain to the different social classes and modes of life. So rules for Brahmins, rules for Kshatriyas, rules for Vaishyas, rules for Shudras, rules for students, rules for householders. Um, and this is the kind of matrix or organizational principle that the Dharma Shastras, um, the, the kind of, we can call them legal texts, we can call them the great texts of Brahmanical orthodoxy. Uh, this is the, the, the matrix or the framework that they use to organize um, their um, their um, uh, promulgation of sacred law. So when I say Varnashrama Dharma, I'm I 
I, I am talking about um, classes and modes of life. Uh, what I'm really talking about is that greater edifice of um, Brahmanical orthodoxy as it's presented in the Dharma Shastras. Um, I don't know if that uh, if that misses something big. Sometimes I, I, I assume so much about this that I, I have trouble explaining it. In a well, it's, it's hard for us. We're we're so in it. Yeah, exactly. And so my job is to sort of mm-hmm. part of my job is to play the naive interlocutor. Sure. Um, or perhaps uh, most of our audience thinks I'm a blith- I'm blithering idiot. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have both ways. I ask these questions like, oh, "So what's Varnashrama Dharma?" Because I don't know. <laughs> no. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. it's it's Brahmanical orthodoxy, but in a very specific and a very specific um, aspect, and and that aspect is as comprised of divinely revealed rules and laws that we call Dharma, and the key sociological features according to which Dharma are organized are these hierarchical classes and these chronological modes of life. Um, so what I, when, I, when I'm looking for the presence of, of Brahmanical orthodoxy in the text, I'm kind of looking for the presence of Varnashrama Dharma, that is to say references to the sacred laws uh, as they pertain to these different classes and as they pertain to kings, right? Raja Dharma, which is usually seen as some kind of subset of Varnashrama Dharma, although it, it, its position in there is a little bit um, um, shaky, I think. Um, so looking for passages that... Um, um, the, the looking for passages that endorse Dharma, endorse Raja Dharma, endorse the idea that the king uh, rules under this cosmic law and that in order to be successful, the king must rule according to cosmic law, right? That in order to be successful as a king, as a politician, to have a, um, a society that's, that's abundant and safe, and in order to be successful personally, to, to be doing the things that will bring him um, um, happy circumstances in the next life and the next world, um, the king has to follow Dharma. So the, the, that's, that's what I'm, when I'm trying to trace Brahmanical orthodoxy, I'm trying to trace uh, Varnashrama Dharma. Those are the kinds of things that I was looking for. So the king is obviously the head honcho um, in terms of, uh, well, I'm not even going to say that much. Uh, one would, one may think the king is the head honcho, but the king actually belongs to the second class, doesn't he? Yeah, right. So you're right. I need to back up a little farther. No, no, the, no, no, the, no, no. Right. This is in no way, shape, or form a critique. This is just an intrigue of mine. That's right. Exactly. In and terms, is... in terms of like, Brahmanical power and then royal power. Like sure. And this is this is what led my to my interest in the arts faster to begin with. So I'm glad you brought this up. Right. So in, in the Varna system, the 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 pride of place, the highest rank is re, uh, reserved for the Brahmins, who are the quote unquote priestly caste or class. And kings uh, are in the second class, the kshatriyas, uh, which were nobles, aristocrats, warriors. And this is considered by, you know, a lot of uh, observers, interpreters, and scholars uh, to be a kind of um, a unique feature of Indian sociology, uh, that here we have a society in which the highest status doesn't go to the king, that is to say to the individual with the army and the treasury and all of the material resources, uh, but to the the priest, and ideally the kind of poor priest or humble priest, you know, um, and and what it suggests is that you know uh, Indian society has been, and I would guess in the, in this kind of thinking remains, a place that is so pious and so concerned with spirituality and spiritual goals that um, that the Brahmin has greater authority than the king. And this is the kind of, you know, um, stereotype thumbnail sketch that we get of society in ancient India. And it's been much critiqued. I don't want to uh, act like I'm, you know, the only person critiquing this. But, and yet one still sees it all over the place. It's still one of the organizing principles that you'll see in uh, historical texts and textbooks. 
Uh, and so um, this subordination of the king to the Brahmin is um, reflected in terms of political theology and the subordination of the king's sovereign power or his um, kshatra to the sacred law of dharma. Right. The, the, the Brahmins are the teachers and the promulgators of Dharma. They are, the, they are the proximate sources of Dharma. And Dharma provides the rules that the king has to follow, again, if he wants to be politically successful and if he wants to take care of his soul in the next world. Uh, and so the model of Indian kingship is a kind of curiously disempowered form of kingship, right? That kings routinely surrender some dimension of their sovereignty to Brahmins and to Dharma, uh, because of their personal piety and because of the kind of general piety of the culture. And that's exactly what the Arthashastra undermines. The Arthashastra um, shows um, a style of statecraft and an approach to governance that pays no attention to Dharma uh, and that pays, um, that pays, uh, that does not recognize the superior status of Brahmins. Now, I need to back up there again because uh, the extant Arthashastra, of course, does have passages in which. Um, in which uh, the text uh, recognizes the king's submission to Dharma or the king's need to submit to Dharma and recognizes the status, the high status of Brahmins, what I call Brahmanical exceptionalism. And it's precisely these passages that I've been able to assign to the later layer of the text that helps us to see that the original Arthashastra was pretty much completely devoid of any of that kind of political theology. So having um, separated the text into these earlier and later layers and having examined the political philosophies of the early layers of the text, we see that our sole significant surviving source from the ancient Indian uh, tradition of statecraft did not conform at all to this stereotypical image of uh, disempowered kingship uh, in ancient India. I guess I should have started there. <laughs> so, no, it's utterly fascinating. This is, I mean, this, this is a journey, right? You never know what'll come between the exchange. Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, there's, there's just so much there and I'm trying to parse it in my brain how much of it, it how much of my questions are self-serving <laughs> which, go for it. Which, I mean, which we can do some other time and how much um, would give a broader context for the book I, I will say though I mean, be self-serving because what the things that need to be hammered out with respect to kingship have to be hammered out by people who study kingship in detail from different perspectives and different genres uh, who, you know, because it's, it's kind of like the, the, the blind monks and the elephant right um, and, and so that, that conversation is very important I think so, he, so here's a, here's a couple questions that come to mind. Um, so, so this the Arthashastra in many ways seems to be have undergone a journey from from you can say practical political manual mm-hmm. to something that has been theologized. Yeah, and I would say admittedly of... lightly theologized. You know, one it's not as though the secularity of the Arthashastra was invisible uh, to to people who weren't working with my model of the text, uh, it was just mixed or obscured a bit, but, but it's, it, it's still, that still comes through very strongly in the extant source. So yeah, I would just add that footnote. And so um, how, would you re- how would you regard these different, um, these different strata of the text in terms of earlier and later? Would you privilege different kernels for different purposes or how do you, how do you make sense of that? Um, in how, how do I regard them in, as kind of, witnesses to the to kingship in the period would you say that the the earlier uh kernels of the text would be more authentic yeah i i want to stay away from the word authenticity because and and because again the idea that there's an authentic text that gets corrupted 
relies on that notion of text that we were talking about earlier, right? The, that there is a kind of um, single original text that that then you know is either preserved or is corrupted. The, I, I think the question is, what does it tell us about the tradition of statecraft? What does it tell us about you know really the conversations? that ministers had, the ways that they conceived the power of the state and the activities of the state, and then the way that they taught their pupils or their sons or however this tradition was transmitted, which of these two, well, how do these two layers of the text tell us anything about that tradition? And, um, and I want to argue um, uh, that the early Arthashastra really accurately reflects the statecraft tradition, at least you know from the early part of the classical period, and that it was a kind of decidedly pragmatic, empiricist, amoral, secular, kind of what have you, uh, tradition. It has this reputation, certainly. Um, and I'm building here on the works of the Russian scholars, um, and I'm going to get their names wrong, Vygazin and Zamosvansev, and they, they've argued that um, the statecraft tradition in India can be traced back to about the 6th century BCE under the rubric of Kshatra Vidya, right, the... the the, the science of, of rule or something like that. Um, and that from an early period in the Jatakas and elsewhere, uh, it has the reputation of being uh, purely pragmatic and amoral. And, uh, and this is its reputation, and this continues to be its reputation even after you know, um, the period of the Arthashastra. Uh, but the fact that it's, its kind of chief identity is its amorality, um, lines up perfectly with what I see happening in the early Arthashastra, you know, a text that's not really parading around its amorality. I mean, at some points, I think it does exult a bit in, in the limitlessness of its, of its kind of moral framework, but really is focused on, on success and pragmatism. Uh, so in my mind, um, these two layers, of the text, the earlier layer gives us a kind of, um, a better view into the statecraft tradition. And, uh, and I think this is backed up in other ways. If we look at niti as a, so one of the, the, um, the predominant terms for the statecraft tradition is niti or niti shastra. And the Arta shastra, I think the, I argue that the early text called itself a danda niti uh, instead of an Arta shastra. Another word, danda being the, the staff, the symbol of the king's power to punish and niti being the term for governance. So leading by means of punishment or by means of the staff. Um, if we look at the Niti tradition, it's a technical governance tradition. It's it's interested in what we think of as the kind of um, routine and occasional activities that a king has to organize or a king's administration has to organize to keep a kingdom going. If we look at the Raja Dharma kind of stuff that we see in uh, Dharma Shastra and in to some extent in Mahabharata, we see a much more ideological reflection on kingship. And so in my mind, the Arta Shastra that you know kind of the earlier original Arthashastra really gives us a look into what the Niti tradition was all about. Now, um, the significance of this later material is, is, um, is that uh, after the Arthashastra, after the redaction of the Arthashastra, we don't encounter any Niti texts that aren't already mixed with this Rajadharma theology, this Rajadharma political theology. That's what we see in the Mahabharata, and I'm assuming there that the this is in, down in the weeds, uh, but I'm assuming that the Raja Dharma Parvan is, is a is a Gupta-ish era um, addition to the text. It's what we see in the Puranas. It's what we see in the in um, strongly in the Dharma Shastras after Manu. Um, but these these don't really replace Niti 
the, 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 the technique of Nietzsche, the technical aspects of Nietzsche that make it its own specific genre, they kind of layer an ideology over the top of it. So um, the, the big question becomes, um, why? Why does this happen? If, the, if, I, if I'm arguing that the early arts of Shastra shows that the Nietzsche tradition was really devoid of this kind of ideology, how come everything we have, including the arts of Shastra, uh, exhibits it? And so in my mind, there's a historical question, uh, which is, um, did the tradition of statecraft undergo important ideological changes around the time that the Arta Shastra was redacted? And I want to say yes, because this fits nicely in with the so-called Brahmanic revival uh, in the Gupta or pre-Gupta period. It fits in with the advent of the Sanskrit cosmopolis. It fits in with the rise of uh, early, on the early part of the rise of what we think of as Puranic Hinduism um, and, it, uh, and so many other things. So um, I want to use this um, this diachronic analysis, the Arta Shastra, to ground uh, a larger consideration of changes in the Niti tradition, um, particularly what we might think of as the, um, the increasing influence of Brahmanical orthodoxy uh, in Niti, uh, at least as our sources show. It, uh, I, I'm just one man, but it holds water, in my opinion. Good, great. <laughs> <laughs> that means a lot to me. I know. But, that's, but, but that's, that's neither, I mean, we can chat after the, the interview is over formally. I mean, the, there will be authors on the program where I may not particularly um, agree with their findings. It's neither here nor there for, for, for the importance of the work and for mm -hmm. folks engaging on their own terms. But, mm -hmm. but um, the argument makes sense to me. Um, uh, the, Good. The, the, clearly, clearly, the work was theologized at some point, right? Um, and clearly, uh, the core of it is just—it's—it's it's a scalpel, right? You could put a velvet ha a velvet a handle on it at some point, but it's a scalpel, right? It's, right this right. is a very incisive text. It's the one word that comes to mind over and over again is necessity, right? Yeah. Like this is what a king needs to do to 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 maintain and wield power, That's social right. power. That's right. right. And so, although the Indian tradition at large. I would say um, subordinate social power to spiritual power. This text fits squarely into in one wing in its in its if not its origins and then in, in, in its um, in its center of gravity, right? It fits in terms of how do we deal with and work with and navigate the social sphere more than the, sp the spiritual sphere. I mean, both wings are necessary, but clearly this text is is on is on one side of the of the bird, you know? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So what now? So what, um, uh, maybe I should ask you, was there anything in the book that you wanted to bring up that we didn't get to touch on in our, in our, um, in our back and forth? I don't think so. I mean, it's, it's uh, as you know, it's very technical, you know, so a lot of what's in there, I, I, I you know, um, eagerly await the response of other Sanskritists and philologists to kind of, kind of put the, put the, um, the technical arguments to the test. Um, but I, Originally, you know, I, I had really wanted in this book to um, branch out and ask some of these larger historical questions like we've been discussing in the last few minutes. Uh, and it, it turned into too big of a project. It wasn't going to get done in that form. So um, the, the book here is really trying to make a very specific argument about the Arta Shastra in isolation. And then in the conclusion, to, to, to begin to... Um, uh, argue what's necessary to make more general historical conclusions based on the more specific conclusions of the study. And so um, that's what's next. Uh, what's next is stepping back and thinking about the development of the Niti tradition, as we talked about towards the top of the interview, the, you know, where, where did this um, isolation of governance as a field of action come from? 
Um, how do we think about its historical sources? Um, and then um, how do we figure out, as we were just discussing, um, how this pragmatic or, 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 or needful uh, approach to politics fits in with a much larger and more complex discussion around kingship um, uh, and culture of kingship. And then finally, uh, and then what happens in these crucial centuries, second, third, fourth, fifth century, that seems to um, imprint itself so clearly and permanently in a way on the statecraft tradition in ancient India. So uh, that's the project for the next book. Uh, you know, and again, uh, the, the heart of that will be a study of the Niti texts and, and really an attempt, I think, to, I think, for the first time or one of the first times to treat Niti as an independent genre and discipline because those who are familiar with it will know that um, the Arta Shastra has been routinely studied as a subset of Dharma Shastra, right? And therefore uh, the argument's been made that one has to assume all of the kind of precepts of Brahmanical orthodoxy while reading the Arta Shastra, even and especially when they're not there. Uh, and so there's a need, I think, just a, a basic kind of need to extract the Niti texts as their own kind of tradition, I don't know if genre is the right word, um, and to try to tell a story of their history independent of um, Dharma Shastra. And I think that's the, that's the, the, the spine or the backbone of, of um, the study that will be able to address these other historical questions. Well, then you will certainly have to return once that <laughs> is produced. Until, until then, we have, we have more than enough to think through in, in, in Mark McClish's The History of the Arthashastra, Sovereignty and Sacred Law in Ancient India. Thank you very much for being on the program today. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, until next time, keep reading. Bye.